the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the uh, Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with Lois Tverberg, who is the author of Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus, How a Jewish Perspective Can Transform Your Understanding. The book is published by Baker, and I think you'll find it very useful and better understanding what can sometimes be culturally confusing uh, as we're reading uh, portions of scripture that the immediate hearers would have understood immediately. But first, uh, some of the developing stories of the day. Former First Lady Barbara Bush, of course, died yesterday at age 92. Dignitaries across the nation and around the world are remembering her grace, her dignity and devotion to her husband, former President George Herbert Walker Bush and her family. They were married for 73 years. CIA Director Mike Pompeo met with Kim Jong-un, we learned, over the Easter weekend to discuss the upcoming meeting between the North Korean dictator and President Trump. Investigators are working to find out what caused an engine on the Southwest Airlines jet to blow in midair, setting off a deadly accident that left one woman dead and seven passengers injured. Well, remembering Barbara Bush is uh, what the nation is doing at this point as the flag is flying at half-staff at the White House. She died at 92. She's being remembered for her strong presence, her grace, unwavering devotion to her family. Bush died days after her family announced that she was in failing health and would decline further medical treatment in favor of comfort care. Her um, celebration of life, that's what she chose to call it, and uh, my understanding is she had a great hand in determining every aspect of that service. Her uh, celebration of Life will take place on Saturday at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, which she and her husband regularly attended. She'll be laid to rest on the grounds of the Bush Library and Texas A&M University and College Station. With her cloud of uh, snow-white hair, signature three strand of pearls, which she admitted were not real, and compelling presence, her image was uh, what she laughingly called everybody's grandmother. But she was also feisty, outspoken, a tireless advocate for literacy, and both wife and mother of a U.S. president, George Herbert Walker Bush was brokenhearted over the loss of his beloved Barbara and was said to have held her hand all day. He was at her side when she passed away, his chief of staff uh, reported. We learned that CIA director Mike Pompeo, or at least acting director, met with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un over the Easter weekend in an effort to lay the groundwork for a summit between Kim and President Trump. It's now been confirmed. Pompeo's trip, which was first reported by the Washington Post, came to light hours after President Trump told reporters that the U.S. and North Korea are holding direct talks at extremely high levels in preparation for what would be an extraordinary meeting following months of heated rhetoric over Pyongyang's nuclear weapons program. The White House and CIA declined to comment on further details of that visit. And investigators uh, from the National Transportation Safety Board have begun their probe into what caused an engine on the Southwest Airlines jet to blow 32,000 feet, rather at 32,000 feet, killing one passenger and injuring seven others. The faulty engine sent shrapnel flying into the plane window, setting off a desperate scramble by passengers to save a woman from being sucked out of a broken plane window. Passengers managed to pull the woman back into the plane, but she was gravely injured and later died. The plane, a twin-engine Boeing 737 bound from New York to Dallas, made an emergency landing in Philadelphia. An engine cowling belonging to the Southwest Airlines jet has been found in Burnville, Pennsylvania. That's about 70 miles west of Philadelphia, the NTSB said late yesterday. A preliminary investigation reportedly showed signs that one of the engine's fan blades had separated and uh, induced metal fatigue. Again, the chairman of the NTSB, Robert Sumwalt, said a full investigation could take from 12 to 15 months, according to officials. And San Diego voted to join the Trump administration's lawsuit against California's sanctuary city law. On this day in 1938, Superman made his debut as the first 
The first issue of the Action Comics went on sale. In 1923, on this day, the first game is played at the original Yankee Stadium in New York. The Yankees defeat the uh, Boston Red Sox 4-1. to The Yankees previously shared the uh, polo grounds with the New York Giants from 1913 to 1922. And in 1775, the British are coming. Paul Revere begins his famous ride from Charleston to Lexington, Massachusetts, warning uh, colonists that British regular troops were approaching. Well, today, of course, has become tax day. We learned late in the day yesterday, in fact, quite late in the day, that because there was a glitch in the computer for the IRS and people were unable to do what they needed to do to file their uh, their returns at the last minute, as of course I did, uh, they've extended by one day uh, the deadline for uh, filing your taxes without penalty. Well, for 2018, Americans will have to have worked nearly four months into the year until April 19th in order to have earned enough money to pay the total tax bill to fund the government. Now, that's on average. That's local, state, federal. That equals about $5.19 trillion, according to the Tax Foundation. That's about 30 percent of the nation's entire income, and it all goes to pay for government. However, the Tax Foundation noted that if uh, if it uh, factors in the budget deficit, which represents future taxes, owed and is expected to hit $806 billion this year. Tax Freedom Day would be May the 6th. Americans will pay $3.19 trillion in federal taxes and $1.80 trillion in state and local taxes in 2018, according to the Tax Foundation. That total of $5.19 trillion is more than Americans spent on food, clothing, and housing combined. Well, the average American sends about um, or sends more than $20,000 to Washington in tax revenue every year, and most see little in return. In 2017, the federal government nabbed more than $3.3 trillion in taxes, but that still isn't enough to satiate Washington's immense growing appetite uh, for spending. The 2017 deficit was a whopping $665 billion, and as I mentioned a moment ago, that is going to grow significantly. Well, some believe most of it goes to welfare programs and foreign aid. Others believe defense and corporation subsidies dominate the budget. But in reality, health entitlements, and I use the word entitlement advisedly. When I posted this on the Facebook page, it was pointed out that the, you know Social Security is not an entitlement, and it's true that people are um, uh, contribute to it. It's mandatory that we do so. However, Congress has notoriously over the years overpromised. They've borrowed from that fund so that it, the, the money just simply isn't there. So it has become something of an entitlement program, and we're talking about Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, along with Obamacare. They're the largest programs that the uh, government funds. If Congress continues its current policies, these entitlements and the interest on the debt are set to consume every dollar of taxes paid by 2027. Now that's less than 10 years away. So it's very sobering. We're not just talking about future generations yet unborn. We're talking about 10 years from now. Uh, Right now, the federal health programs such as Medicare, Medicaid, and Obamacare subsidies currently consume 28% of the budget. Uh, Federal health spending is projected to grow on an unstable trajectory of 6% per year over the next 10 years, and that growth rate is about three times the projected pace of economic growth over the same period. You can do the math. Meanwhile, Social Security, the single largest federal program, accounts for Roughly a quarter of all federal spending, its um, trust funds are already paying out more than they are taking in. And as more people retire, the system will face continued stress. So without reform, the program's trustees project benefits will need to be cut uh, as much as 23 percent if nothing is done by 2034. Our tax dollars at work and the failure of Congress to do its work, sadly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this the new tax day. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we're going to talk with Lois Verberg. She's the author of Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus, How a Jewish Perspective Can Transform Your Understanding. That's coming up in our next segment. Well, nearly a dozen Republican members of Congress uh, today sent a criminal referral to the Justice Department and FBI seeking an investigation of former bureau boss James Comey, his deputy Andrew McCabe, but ex-Attorney General Loretta Lynch, and Hillary Clinton in connection with the 2016 campaign controversy. Attorney General Sessions already announced last month that he had assigned a federal prosecutor to review some of those broader issues while resisting calls for a second special counsel. But the referral represents an escalation of Republican pressure to probe top Democrats 
and Trump critics. Representative Ron DeSantis, a Republican out of Florida, and 10 other lawmakers, they want an investigation into potential violations that cover everything from the handling of the Clinton email probe to the anti-Trump dossiers funding to the Uranium One controversy. They made their case in the letter sent Wednesday to Sessions, FBI Director Christopher Wray and U.S. Attorney John Huber, whom Sessions named to lead the previously announced evaluation, complaining about dissimilar degrees of zealousness in the investigations into Clinton and the Trump campaign associates. They wrote, because we believe that those in positions of high authority should be treated the same as every other American. We want to be sure that the potential violations of law outlined below are vetted appropriately. They named Comey, Clinton, Lynch, McCabe, FBI agents Peter Stroke and Lisa Page and several others as figures who should be investigated. And it seems to me that... um, trying to keep a ledger of all of the investigations, requested investigations, controversies, who said what to whom, books and so on, is a full-time job, which I don't really relish having at this moment. Well, yesterday, a former FBI agent found himself facing several years in prison after pleading guilty in a federal St. Paul courtroom to leaking classified documents to the media. Former FBI Minnesota counterterrorism FBI agent Terry Albury, 39, pled guilty to a single count of unauthorized disclosure of national defense information and a single count of unauthorized retention of national defense information. In a statement, the Department of Justice reports, according to court documents beginning in 2016 and continuing Continuing through August 2017, Albury knowingly and willingly, willfully disclosed national defense information classified at the secret level to a reporter. Albury employed methods to avoid detection, including printing documents that he created by cutting and pasting portions of an original document into a new document so as to avoid leaving a record of having printed the original classified document. Albury also assessed documents on a classified computer and took pictures of the computer screen in order to uh, photograph certain certain classified documents. Those additional classified documents were recovered on an electronic storage device found during a search of his home. Today, Terry Albury admitted to violating his oath to protect our country by disclosing to a reporter classified information that, as an FBI agent, he was entrusted to protect. That's a quote from Assistant Attorney General Demers. Albury admitted that his actions put America at risk. As this prosecution demonstrates, we will not waver in our commitment to pursue and hold accountable government officials who violate the their obligation to protect our nation's secrets and break the laws they have sworn to uphold. Well, that actually proves just the opposite, since there are others we know to have done the same thing. Anyway, Mr. Albury has entrusted, uh, uh, was entrusted by the FBI with a security clearance, which included a responsibility to protect classified national defense information. Instead, he knowingly disclosed that material to someone not authorized to receive it. That's Assistant Director Bill Prystap of the FBI's Counterintelligence Division. He went on to say the FBI will work tirelessly to bring to justice those who expose America's secrets. Today, as the result of our hard work and dedicated special agents, analysts, and prosecutors, Mr. Albury has taken responsibility for his illegal actions. Now, we'll see if that applies to uh, anyone with that kind of clearance making classified information available. Well, Justice Neil Gorsuch provided the decisive vote yesterday in a Supreme Court ruling striking down a key provision that made it easier to deport immigrants convicted of violent crimes and a blow to the Trump administration. President Trump's Supreme Court pick has largely sided with the conservative members of the bench since his appointment nearly one year ago or just a little over one year ago, but sided with the liberal wing on Tuesday. The court said the part of the law in question is too vague to be enforced. The court's 5-4 decision concerns a provision of federal immigration law that defines a crime of violence. Conviction for a crime of violence subjects an immigrant uh, to deportation and um, usually spends uh Uh, speeds up the process, rather. Well, a federal appeals court in San Francisco previously struck down the provision as too vague, and on Monday, the Supreme Court agreed. The appeals court based its ruling on a 2015 Supreme Court decision that struck down a similarly worded part of of, uh, another federal law that imposes longer prison sentences on repeat criminals. The decision is a loss for the Trump administration, which, like President Barack Obama's administration before it, had defended the provision at issue before the Supreme Court, and it comes amid an ongoing focus on immigration by the current president. The case the high court ruled in involves James DeMaia, a native of the Philippines, who came to the United States legally as a 13-year-old in 1992. 
After he pled not no contest, rather, to two charges of burglary in California, the government began deportation proceedings against him. The government argued, among other things, that he could be removed from the country because his convictions qualified as crimes of violence that allowed his removal under the immigration law. The case will initially uh, was initially argued in January of last year by the court that was short a member because the late Justice Antonin Scalia's seat had not yet been filled. An eight-member uh, court didn't decide the issue, presumably because the justices were deadlocked four to four. After Gorsuch joined the court, the justices heard the case re-argued. Gorsuch joined the court's more liberal justices in finding the clause too vague. The case is Sessions versus uh, DeMaia. And again, this uh, the first... Um, case of its kind in which Gorsuch ruled against what the conservative side of the court has done. Uh, Three cases to watch as the Supreme Court starts to wrap up this term. This week marks the start of the Supreme Court's final oral argument sessions of the current term. The justices are going to hear arguments in several important cases that include challenges to the constitutionality of administrative law judges, state sales taxes for out-of-town online retailers, and the infamous Trump travel ban, making this month one to watch. Um, South Dakota versus Wayfair. Can states require online retailers to collect sales taxes, even if they don't maintain a physical presence in those states? Well, that's the question before the court on the 17th. It's fittingly tax day. The court will, uh, or I should say the court to consider now present tense, whether it should overturn Quill Corporation versus North Dakota, a 1992 ruling that forbade states from requiring mail order retailers to collect a state sales tax if they don't have a physical presence within that state, such as a store or employees. Given the rapid growth of online sales, many states complain that they're losing out on millions of dollars in lost sales tax. This is designed to address that issue. Then there's Lucia versus Securities and Exchange Commission. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 of the Constitution authorizes Congress to, and I quote, vest the appointment of interior officers in the president alone in the court of laws, or rather, in the heads of departments. That's an abbreviated version. Are administrative law judges inferior officers? according to this um, uh, this article. And who is responsible for their appointments? Those are the issues before the court on the 23rd of this month. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission uses administrative law judges to preside over enforcement proceedings involving potential violations of federal securities laws. Currently, SEC staff, SEC staff, select administrative law judges from a list of candidates compi- complied, uh, rather compiled by the Office of Personnel Management. However, if they are, in fact, officers under the appointments clause, this process would violate the Constitution and the commission itself would be required to appoint the judges. So it's a sort of housekeeping, if you will, uh, on that issue. And finally, Trump versus Hawaii. The third version of President Donald Trump's infamous travel ban is on the docket for April the 25th. The court's going to consider whether Trump's proclamation suspending aliens travel to the United States from eight countries exceeds the president's authority and violates the establishment clause. Well, following challenges to the first two versions of the travel ban, the Trump administration issued a proclamation on the 27th of September, barring travel from several predominantly Muslim countries, as well as North Korea and Venezuela. Uh, This order lays out the administration's reasons for restricting travel for each of the countries. Well, the state of Hawaii and private parties filed a lawsuit claiming that the travel ban exceeds the president's delegated authority under the Immigration and Naturalization Act, discriminates in issuing visas based on nationality, and singles out Muslims for disfavored treatment in violation of the Establishment Clause. Now, keep in mind, the vast majority of Muslim countries are not listed here. And there are non-Muslim countries also listed. Well, the Trump administration defends that proclamation. They argue that the president has broad authority to exclude aliens from entering the country, as the country previously held in Kleinstein's versus Mandel, where the president is acting pursuant to authority delegated by Congress and his own constitutional authority over foreign affairs. All three being taken up by the court in its final few days of hearings. Up next, we're going to talk with the author of Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus, how a Jewish perspective can transform your understanding. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The truth is, cultural differences, large and small, can separate modern readers from how the Bible thinks, as my next guest puts it. In her new book, Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus, How a Jewish Perspective Can Transform Your Understanding, best-selling author Lois Verberg, she digs into a rich repository of knowledge to shed light on many puzzling passages 
uh, passages, excuse me, whose cultural meaning would otherwise escape us. She illuminates the language, the culture, and the imagery of the Bible. And she equips modern readers to read the Bible as Jesus and his disciples would have. In the process, she helps readers realize that the Bible speaks with a Jewish accent. By opening readers' eyes, uh, she takes us on a journey that will deepen our love for the very Jewish book that we uh, love, enriching our lives in the process. Um, Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus is a fascinating look at scriptures that may be very familiar, but understood less than they could. Well, Lois Sverberg, she uh, has been a speaker and writer about the Jewish background of Christianity for the past 20 years. Her passion is to translate the Bible's ancient setting into fresh insights that deepen and strengthen Christian faith. She is co-founder of the Engedi Resource Center and Educational Ministry with a goal of deepening Christian understanding of the Bible in its original context. She's a former professor, currently lives in Holland, Michigan, and speaks at churches, conferences, and retreats. And we are delighted that uh, Lois Twerberg Verberg is with us today. Her book is titled Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus, How a Jewish Perspective Can Transform Your Understanding. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Georgine. Well, I, I love this book because it does help us to better understand references um, that we can thoroughly misunderstand with our 21st century Western uh, lenses on. For example, wrinkles and gray hair. We try to avoid the appearance of aging at all costs, but it may mean something different in the scriptures we love. Uh, gaining a, a, a clothing size, for example, may mean something entirely different. It's not something to be shunned, but it's an accomplishment to be pursued. So this really helps us to uh, to better understand what it is that we're being uh, taught in Scripture. That's right. And I'm uh, working on accomplishing clothing sizes even now, I think. (laughs) But yes, uh, it's almost surprising how many ways uh, that our cultures, you know, everywhere around the Bible, or I mean, around the world, you expect to encounter different ways of thinking and different attitudes. And uh, that was something that I realized uh, over the past 20 years, I've been focusing mainly on writing about the Jewishness of Jesus. But as I was thinking and working on it, I, I saw more and more that uh, that there were things that were kind of just floating past us because we weren't aware of his Middle Eastern Jewish setting. Uh, and our modern Western culture tends to separate us from the way the, as I say, the way the Bible thinks. Yeah, yeah. Now, clearly, there is sufficient, um, the Bible is sufficient to communicate on the core values of the Christian faith so that we can come to yeah, trust in Christ sure. and understand those basic um, sure. tenets. But there are nuances that we may not fully appreciate if we don't understand that Jewish uh, accent, if you will, in the way yeah. the Bible speaks. How can cultural differences get in the way of how we read the Bible? Well, um, uh, yeah, exactly. I'm not trying to rewrite and, and say that we've, we've got it all wrong, but what I have found is that, um, well, I tell a story about my nephew when he was about five years old, when uh, he was uh, coming up for Christmas to the Midwest, and this was the first time he had ever seen snow before. And so he said to me, or, or actually his grandpa, he said, uh, what do you do with the snow when you have to mow the lawn? Because he kind of taken his own reality and then projected that reality onto this new world that he didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And so I say often we tend to project our reality onto uh, a, a, a place where people thought very differently. Things like we live in an industrialized culture, meaning that we don't understand you know Jesus' parables about farming. We, we 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 vaguely understand them, but they don't kind of catch us between the eyes. Like you know, we aren't moved by these ideas. Or uh, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God all the time, and the word kingdom doesn't really resonate with us. We we understand it, but uh, we we don't have that visceral reaction that people did, where it was the reality all around them as they were. Uh, thinking and uh, praying and studying. So, yeah, you also um, write about the word, um, as we know, gospel, the good news. Yeah. That there's, uh, we understand the the gospel is good news, but there's so much more there yeah. that uh, that we could understand and grasp that that deepens yeah. our appreciation of what Christ yeah. has done for us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think some people even 
uh, say, you know, when I open up my Bible and I'm looking for what is the good news, they're wishing they can find a page, and they struggle to find it because they're looking for something written exactly to me, you know, because we tend to read our Bibles as a me. Well, uh, but what the Bible tends to say instead is it talks about the gospel uh, for the nations, or the, or he, you know, Jesus says he tells the nations to repent and um, receive him. Or we talk about receiving Christ. Well, Christ it means the uh, anointed, and it usually, it pretty much always, but uh, in the biblical world, tended to point towards a king. Yeah, the king was the one who was anointed by God to lead. So when we talk about accepting Christ, it's we are um, receiving him as king, and we're entering his kingdom. And the word kingdom is 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 a plural word. It's you know it's not exactly plural. It's a it's talking about a whole body of people who who Christ is saving by reigning over them. So I, uh, the point being that when we're looking for the gospel, we need to be thinking about all the people Jesus is. Um, saving by reigning over them rather than only, uh, you know, you can't quite find it written exactly one uh, to you by yourself. Now, you mentioned an acronym, uh, acronym weird that psychologists coined to describe the way American culture differs uh, from the rest of the world. How do you yeah. think this, uh, this comes into play in reading the Bible? Okay. It seems a little odd. I found <laughs> a, a fascinating uh, study of cultures around the world that said it's interesting how American and European cultures have shifted from much of the world, uh, much of the rest of the, they call it the majority world, uh, the rest of Mm non-Western. And uh, uh, they, that acronym stands for we're Western, we're educated in uh, uh, from industrialized countries. We were rich and we live in democratic countries and all of those things are ways we tend to, like, if you live in a democratic culture, which is a good thing, that's a good thing. But you, you, we don't really like hierarchy, and we don't uh, really like the idea of kings and kingdoms and authority, whereas a lot of the world still thinks that way. And the Bible thinks that way, too. And, and so I point out that some of these traits... Uh, that set us apart from uh, much of uh, the rest of the people tend to also set us apart from the Bible, uh, biblical world at least. And so that's part of my theme in the book is to say, um, is to look at what is uh, getting, uh, what things are 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 we um, shifting away from the rest of the world and how we think. You've been studying the Jewish background of Christianity for uh, over 20 years, you've written several books on that subject and others related to it. From your perspective, what's one of the most important insights that you've learned over this course of time in trying to better understand the Bible and challenge us to, to read it as it was uh, meant uh, and, and heard by those who heard it contemporaneously? Sure. Well, <laughs> when I was in college, I uh, had some professors that were pretty much giving up on believing that the New Testament was historically useful, that they were, they they said, you know, Jesus d- doesn't sound like he is claiming to be the Christ, uh, because they were looking at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, that's where you find a lot of these Jewish sayings that he, he says. Um, and they were looking at the rest of the Bible, and they're saying, oh, that's so much more, um, ex- so much more, um, um, worshipful, you know, but what I discovered, to answer your question, the most important thing I discovered was a bunch of Jewish and Christian scholars who were studying his Jewish words and finding that Jesus was actually making incredibly important, powerful claims to being the Christ. And uh, my own professors were actually missing it because they did not know his Jewish context. So I found that my faith has been affirmed and and actually, uh, I've got answers for some of the objections uh, to my own skeptical 
professors because of what I've been studying from his Jewish historical context. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Lois Verberg. Her book is titled Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus, How a Jewish Perspective Can Transform Your Understanding. The book is published by Baker. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Lois Tverberg. Her book is titled Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus, How to how a Jewish Perspective Can Transform Your Understanding. Now, how is Hebrew different from English? Can you give us some examples of Hebrew words that deepen our understanding of the Bible? Sure, Georgine. Hebrew, uh, surprisingly, Hebrew is has many fewer words than English does. It has probably about uh, the difference between about 8,000 words and 100,000 words uh, in its vocabulary uh, when you compare it to English. And you'd, you'd think that'd be a problem. It actually means that it is richer. Each word has to carry more meaning. And one word I often point out is the word shema, which means to hear or listen, but it actually also means obey. Um, And if you look up the word obey in English, you'll pretty much always find the word Shema behind it in Hebrew. And it tells you, this is in the Old Testament, of course, it's written in Hebrew, but it tells you that there's an expectation that hearing is somehow linked to action in a way that we don't necessarily think of in English. Now, lots of people wonder why the Bible contains so many lists of names. And this is an example of the importance from a, an Eastern perspective as opposed to our Western. What's significant about, significant rather, about the genealogies culturally, and why are they in, included for our edification as well? <laughs> well, I used to see, I, I, used to, I call them the begats, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the, all those long lists of begats uh, seemed like a big, fat, outdated phone book that was kind of loosely attached, and I wished it, they just edited it out. <laughs> and I actually had a Bible translator tell me that in the Philippines, he was working on a translation where they had actually skipped all of that uh, on the first run, and then they and then they decided to put the, the Jesus' begats back in. And uh, some of the people from the um, local population said, oh, you mean this Jesus is a real person? Because mm-hmm. uh, most of the world uh, thinks more about um, the world in terms of families and tribes and clans, and so that's how you describe uh, the layout of the world. You know, instead of geography, I mean, uh, instead of nations, you think in terms of tribes. And, you know, when... Family is everything. That's what you expect uh, when God promises Abraham the greatest of all promises. He says, you know, I will give you a family that will bless the whole world. And so um, the begats are, are telling us that God is fulfilling his promise, and they are also presenting the biblical message in the way that everybody, much of the world, understands it best. How has studying the Jewishness of Jesus impacted your your uh, faith in Christ? Well, like I, I was telling you before about discovering Jesus saying powerful things in Jewish ways, that very much challenged and changed the way I looked. It gave me a lot of confidence. I remember finding that when people started asking me hard questions about my faith, my blood pressure was lower because I often had a really... Uh, interesting answer that uh, coming out of the text and the culture that I didn't have before. So it's given me a lot more sureness and relaxedness about sharing about my faith. Yeah. And I, I just appreciate knowing that there's there's so much more than I imagined in so many of the words or the passages or events that my Western culture sort of limited my ability to fully appreciate. You write about how, how, how we read about Daniel's fast. And again, going back to this notion that um, in Western culture, putting on weight or being heavy is, is interpreted one way uh, and events are interpreted differently in ancient cultures. What did you write about Daniel's fast? What should we know? Sure. Well, 
everybody everybody knows that if you want to have a good diet, you know, we think of Daniel. He's when he ate only vegetables and uh, and then didn't eat the, from the king's table. We say, wow. That's so inspirational. I will use his example for my diet. And so there have been lots of books written about that. But the the kind of the punchline that I, I find funny is that if you look in a very literal Bible translation, they will point out that it actually says that Daniel and his friends became fatter in flesh than the people who <laughs> eat the regular diet. And the reason is because... Obviously, we we live in a, a wealthy culture with plenty of food, and we struggle with too much. But um, much of the world, um, uh, and back in biblical times, really struggled with not enough. And so, to be um, uh, to be healthy was to be fat. And I have friends in Uganda who say it is a, a nice compliment to be say, to be told, boy, you're looking fat. You are healthy. <laughs> I'll have so, to try to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> funny thing. I mean, it's not a major thing, but it just tells you that we can actually write whole books right, reading the Bible upside down or backwards by <laughs> not getting what the culture really was like back yeah. then. So. Now, you've written a couple of other books before this one that have uh, similar titles. One is Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus and another Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus. How do they relate to this book that encourages us to consider the Bible from the Jewish perspective it was written? Good, good. Um, well, those are more, I would say, more specifically about Jesus' um, Jewish faith. Uh, the, the Sitting at the Feet book was really about his, um, his context, uh, Jewish context, in terms of feasts, uh, you know, the biblical festivals and the rabbis and disciples and um, uh, all, uh, Jewish prayer, a lot of things that are very, that uh, Gentiles, we just don't know about, and they're really pertinent to getting some of the best points out of things he says. And so, uh, and then the Walking in the Dust book actually looks at some of Jesus's words and sayings, his things that he tells us to do that actually have a context in his Jewish world that actually are very practical and um, and helpful for knowing how to be a better disciple. So that's how those, those are more specifically about Jewishness, even though I do spend quite a bit of time on how the, they, the Jews read the Bible in the first century and how much they were looking for the Messiah in there. That's in my newest book, Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus. But you you can hear me talk about all of the things of his uh, Middle Eastern, um, non-Western culture that I was also looking at at the same time. Yeah, the thing I appreciated about the book is that it not only helps me better understand the meaning of something, but it it tells me that there the, the scriptures are so much fuller and richer than I imagined, that even what I do understand could be understood more uh, more deeply. And I appreciate that, uh, you know, it's new every morning that God's Word is, is living and active, and uh, your book helps to bring that out. Thank you. Yeah, I, I have to say I am awed and amazed, and I am I, I feel very much humbled at realizing how much more we need to know. And I, honestly, in one single way is really a simple way that people, that most of us don't have much of any background in the Old Testament. And uh, one thing that was huge to me was to discover how often Jesus hinted and quoted from it and how much he honestly expected people to know it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's an easy way. Well, it's not that easy, but it's easier than you don't yeah. have to go and learn a new culture. You just start reading the rest of your Bible. <laughs> well, the book is titled Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus, How a Jewish Perspective Can Transform Your Understanding. Lois Verberg, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, George. Really appreciate it. Again, the book is published by Baker Books. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blinn is producing. Later this hour, we want to remind you of some of the schools in our area. Christian schools are offering some significant tuition discounts of up to 40 percent. We'll have an opportunity to hear from a couple of them and encourage you to go to the website, listenersavings.com, for all the details on uh, what is available. So do check that out. Well, San Diego County voted uh, yesterday to become the latest in a string of local governments throughout California. They're backing the Trump administration's lawsuit against the state of California over its sanctuary city laws. Well, after hearing from residents, the all-Republican San Diego County Board of Supervisors voted three to one to support the lawsuit by the federal government. Uh, The lawsuit over laws, it says, limit police cooperation with federal immigration agents. One member was absent during Tuesday's votes. We don't know how he or she might have cast their vote. Uh, As the uh, second largest county in California, San Diego is a region of three million residents. It borders Mexico. It's the largest county to back the lawsuit. Well, Supervisor Greg Cox, who cast the uh, only dissenting vote, said in a statement afterward that the board's vote is a largely symbolic move that will create fear and divisiveness in our region. Region, waste taxpayer funds and create distrust of law enforcement and local government within many communities, end quote. Well, the uh, vote followed a similar one on Monday when the city of Los uh, Alam- Alamitos uh, voted four to one to approve the, an ordinance there seeking to exempt the city from the so-called sanctuary law on the grounds that it was unconstitutional. A string of local governments throughout the state of California have blocked the Trump administration's decision to sue last month, arguing that the federal government, not the state, has authority over immigration policies. San Diego now joins Orange County, the state's third largest uh, populous uh, county, in rejecting the state law. Uh, that shields criminal illegal immigrants from deportation. The San Diego vote brings to 10 the number of governmental entities that voted against the state law that declared California and uh, by statute all law enforcement in it uh, would not communicate with federal agents when it came to all but the most violent repeat convict criminals. Uh, illegal immigrants. California Governor Jerry Brown said yesterday that uh, Washington's tough stance against immigrants in the country illegally is just an inflammatory football that very low-life politicians like to exploit. Hmm, a bit of a low blow. If President Donald Trump wants to round them up like some totalitarian government and ship them out, says uh, say that, uh, Brown said, but he doesn't say that because the American people would repudiate him and his party. Of course, that's not what he wants to do, but he does want to, as apparently some part of the California population agree with uh, holding those who are in the country illegally and uh, guilty of uh, having been convicted of criminal acts of uh, leaving the country. Well, the remnants of the migrant caravan that was headline news most of last week of Central Americans that drew the ire of the president are continuing their journey north through uh, Mexico toward the United States border, but they've all but dropped off of the uh, the radar. Organizers say that about 500 uh, immigrants, or migrants rather, out of the 2,000 that we were told originally have been riding trains north since departing Mexico City last weekend. The caravan that left the uh, Guatemala-Mexico border in late March grew to more than 1,000 migrants who found uh, safety traveling in numbers. Well, he uh, went on to say that Mexico City was the caravan's last official stop, but many of the migrants feared going solo on the dangerous final leg north and decided to keep traveling in mass. Speaking from the western city of Guadalajara on Wednesday, he said that they're headed to Tijuana, where about half plan to uh, request asylum into the United States. So if you wonder what happened to the so-called caravan, and we were hearing numbers originally of uh, of upwards of 2,000. Now we're hearing 1,000 and uh, only a couple of hundred that are are now making their way to the U.S. border. We'll continue to follow the story as that is uh, made possible. Well, Cuban President uh, Raul Castro is stepping down tomorrow, passing the baton to a new generation in its transition that brings to a close the Castro brothers' six-decade grip on power. Castro said in one of his last speeches as leader last month, we have come a long way so that our children, those of the present and those of the future, will be happy. Well, the 86-year-old has been in power since 2006 when he took over after illness sidelined his brother, Fidel, who seized power in the 1959 revolution. Between them, father of the nation, Fidel, and younger brother, Raul, they ruled Cuba for nearly 60 years, making the Caribbean island a key player in the Cold War and helping keep communism afloat despite the collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, on Thursday, that chapter of history will come to a close when the National Assembly elects a new president of the Council of State, 
catapulting the island into the post-Castro era. So there has been a chosen one. It's an election, but it's a foregone conclusion. Uh, uh, The first uh, vice president, Miguel Diaz-Canal. The assembly will begin gathering uh, today, in fact, although the vote itself will take place tomorrow, with members widely expected to select the current vice president, first vice president, a gray-haired 57-year-old who's climbed the party ranks and has been uh, Raul Castro's right-hand man since 2013. There will be a sense of renewal, says uh, Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez, and there will be a sense of continuity. Well, continue in a very different way. The outgoing president will remain at the head of the Communist Party until its uh, next Congress in 2021 when he turns 90. Time enough to ensure a controlled transition and to watch over his protege when inevitably old guard communists challenge his reforms. Well, Cuban political scientist Esteban Morales, he says the two would likely work in tandem with Castro continuing to act as the ideological figurehead, while Diaz-Canal concentrates on the very complex and difficult task of running the government. The heir to the Castros will be faced with modernizing the economy at a time when Cuba's key regional ally, Venezuela, its source of cheap oil, is stumbling through an acute economic crisis and amid a resurgence of the U.S. embargo under President Trump. Well, on the uh, island, the transition is fueling moderate debate between fervent Castroites and their critics who expect few changes after the election in which they have no direct participation. Cubans last month elected a new National Assembly whose 605 members are tasked with voting in the new president. They're changing the government, but it's still the same kind. It's always going to be influenced by the Castros, says Ariel Ortiz, an unemployed 24-year-old in Havana. Even if it's another man, it's always going to be a Castro government. Retiree Raul uh, Garcia, 79, said they say that Raul is leaving the presidency and that another younger man will come. That's logical. But Raul is not leaving. He's always going to be with us like Fidel. Well, as it uh, as if rather to underscore a sense of continuity, the authorities are not planning a special ceremony for the assembly vote and foreign journalists anxious for an early look at the new president have not been invited. We will continue the path of the revolution, says Diaz-Canal after voting in last month's assembly election. The triumphant march of the revolution will continue, he said. However, despite striving for a low key transition, there's uh, no getting away from the fact that this this represents a monumental change in Cuba, if only way of personnel and certainly a new generation. It's going to be the first time in almost six decades that the Cuban president will not be a Castro, will not be part of the historic generation of 1959, will not wear a military uniform and will not be the head of the Communist Party. If elected, Diaz-Canal is expected to be able to make up for his lack of revolutionary pedigree with the support of Castro watching benevolently from from his perch atop the all-powerful Communist Party. Well, the level of responsibility given to the old guard in the new government will be closely watched as a measure of how quickly change can be wrought by Diaz-Canal. He's going to be expected to build on the reforms introduced by Castro in recent years, particularly those giving greater latitude to the island's tourism industry and small business sector. The date of the historic vote is um, heavy with symbolism. It falls on the 57th anniversary of the Bay of Pigs invasion when the CIA tried to overthrow Castro in 1961, an episode Havana has long proclaimed as American imperialism first great defeat in Latin America. Again, that election taking place tomorrow with a foregone conclusion, a change in name and personnel, but it's not expected there'll be much uh, more change afoot. Israel is ready to mark 70 years since the country's creation uh, today, celebrating its improbable economic success and military prowess, but facing a range of political and security challenges. The anniversary of the proclamation of the state of Israel by founding father David Ben-Gurion begins at sundown or began rather at sundown on Wednesday under the Hebrew calendar, but falls on May the 14th, according to the Western calendar. Israelis call it Independence Day as it marks the end of British mandatory rule in Palestine and the birth of a sovereign Jewish state. Since Tuesday evening, the country has been solemnly marking the annual Remembrance Day for its fallen soldiers and civilians killed in attacks. At sunset, the mood changes sharply as the 24-hour Independence Day party kicks off. It enters the holiday with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu boosting his warnings over Iran, particularly related to its presence in neighboring Syria. And of course, there's always the ongoing problem with the Palestinians just across the way. Again, Israel marking 70 years as a nation as new and old challenges lurk. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, former First Lady Barbara Bush died yesterday at 92. She and Abigail Adams were the only two women to be both wife and mother of U.S. President. And Barbara Bush was more than fiery enough to be up for the task. The office of former President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush issued a statement saying, a former First Lady of the United States of America and relentless proponent of family literacy, Barbara Pierce Bush, passed away Tuesday, April 17th, 2018, at the age of 92. She is survived by her husband of 73 years, President George Herbert Walker Bush, five children and their spouses, 17 grandchildren, seven great-grandchildren, and her brother, Scott Pierce. She was preceded in death by her second child, Pauline Robinson, Robin Bush, and her siblings, Martha Rafferty and James R. Pierce. Well, former President George W. Bush called his mother a fabulous first lady and a woman unlike any other. He also said, my dear mother has passed on at age 92. Laura, Barbara, Jenna and I are sad, but our souls are settled because we know hers was. Barbara Bush was a fabulous first lady and a woman unlike any other who brought levity, love and literacy to millions. To us, she was so much more. Mom kept us on our toes and kept us laughing until the end. I'm a lucky man that Barbara Bush was my mother. Our family will miss her dearly, and we thank you all for your prayers and good wishes. Well, the Bushes were famously close, marrying just four months after George was shot down over the Pacific in 1944. In their only surviving love letter dated December 12, 1943, George wrote, I love you, precious, with all my heart, and to know that you love me means my life. How often I have thought about the immeasurable joy that will be ours someday. How lucky our children will be to have a mother like you. Of her husband, Barbara once said, I married the first man I ever kissed. When I tell my children that, (laughs) they just about throw up. Um, Dan McLaughlin said she always uh, lived by her values, love of country, devotion to family, loyalty to those who are loyal uh, in return, and an obligation to public service. Finally, Barbara Bush herself offered some words of wisdom that all of us, from the youngest employee to the president, should should heed. Rather, at the end of her life, uh, at the end of your life, you will never regret not having passed one more test, not winning one more verdict, or not closing one more deal. You will regret time not spent with your husband, a friend, a child, or a parent. Rest in peace, Barbara Bush. A funeral service for the former First Lady is planned for Saturday at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston. Mrs. Bush and her husband for more than seven decades were married, rather, for more than seven decades. Former President George Bush uh, regularly attended the church over the years. Uh, Several former presidents and First Ladies, as well as dignitaries, are expected to attend that service. Prior to Saturday, Mrs. Bush's body will lie in repose on Friday at the church for members of the public who want to uh, pay their respects. She will be laid to rest on grounds of the Bush Presidential Library in Texas A&M University in College Station. A student-led vigil was had at that library on Tuesday night. Barbara Bush was uh, last rather appeared at the university in 2017, accompanied by her husband and their son, former President George W. Bush, for a concert that included performances by Lady Gaga and Lyle Lovett. Mrs. Bush was born in New York City. She grew up in the suburbs of Rye, New York. She married former President Bush in 1945. And in addition to the former presidents, Mrs. Bush is survived by her brother, by children and uh, great-grandchildren. I should say grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She was the 33rd First Lady of the United States. Well, it's unthinkable, but Pastor Andrew is being returned to the horrible prison from which he emerged two days ago for the first day of a trial that was uh, hoped for uh, would produce uh, some sort of verdict, uh, release, uh, some sort of reprieve for the first day of uh, the American pastor, Andrew Brunson's uh, trial was filled with secret witnesses for the prosecution. Their testimony was broadcast into the courtroom via video with their voices and appearances altered. There was no opportunity to see any evidence to identify his accusers. In the United States, this kind of uh, tactic would have been thrown out of court, but not in Turkey. Then at the conclusion of a grueling, nearly 13 hour long day of trial, the judge refused to release the pastor. He ordered Pastor Andrew to uh, be thrown back into the first prison that he had been in, a notoriously overcrowded and grim institution. 
Then the Turkish court delayed the trial until the 7th of May. Now, while this case has taken a bleak turn, this, these next three weeks, we're being told, are very critical. We have to turn up the pressure. Pastor Andrew is innocent. He's on trial for Christianization, as the indictment says, for his faith and for serving as pastor. Uh, the ACLJ, the American Center for Law and Justice, is directly involved in directing his legal defense in Turkey, and they're obtaining statements from nearly a dozen witnesses in defense of the pastor from across the globe, and they're fighting on Capitol Hill and at the U.N. on his behalf. But without the voice of average uh, people from not only this country but around the world, this innocent pastor could very well spend the rest of his life in a Turkish prison, which is nothing like uh, the prison system that we uh, that we have here, although none of us would like to be incarcerated, being incarcerated there is really a, a very different and uh, harsh experience. So they're asking uh, listeners here to sign the petition. You can go to their website, aclj.org, learn more about the pastor and sign that petition along with uh, more than a half a million others, uh, trying to put some pressure on the United Nations, on the uh, Turkish uh, government and judicial system to um, to release him. We do know that uh, th- this has been politicized and there was an effort and it's ongoing to link him to a cleric that's uh, here in the United States that uh, Erdogan believes is responsible for, whether or not that's the case, for the coup. And a prisoner exchange is one of the things that they've been attempting because, quite frankly, they have no evidence against this pastor for the things that he is being accused of. Well, as I mentioned uh, yesterday, U.S. officials stood with the pastor at the Turkish terrorism trial yesterday. That's how it's being characterized there. For most of American uh, Pastor uh, Brunson's 18-month imprisonment there, the government failed to officially indict him or to offer an opportunity for bail or his release. The indictment was only made public a month ago. Finally, his terrorism and espionage case came to trial, but the proceedings continue to underline the strain relations uh, between the United States and Turkey and the opportunity that uh, they seem to be taking to try to force the United States hand. Well, Sam Brownback, who is the U.S. State Department's new ambassador at large for religious freedom, he traveled there this week to back the American pastor in court, just um, which was held just 38 miles uh, from Izmir, the coastal city where uh, Pastor Brunson had led a small Presbyterian church for some 23 years. Turkey has accused the evangelical pastor who lived in the Muslim-majority country for 23 years before his arrest, following an attempted coup in 2016 of fueling unrest in the country through alleged involvement with exiled cleric um, Gulen and the Kurdistan Worst Party, an insurgent group. Both movements have seen uh, are seen rather as enemies and threats to the Turkish government. Well, the government told the court in Turkish, he's fluent during his hearing, I have been praying for Turkey for 25 years. I wouldn't do anything against the country. Uh, but that is the nature of the, uh, the accusation. Now, as I mentioned yesterday, he is a United States citizen, Pastor Andrew Brunson. He was born in South Carolina. His home church is uh, in Montreat, North Carolina. He graduated from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois in 1991. He's lived in Turkey for 23 years with his wife and three children without incident. He pastored Izmir Resurrection Church in Izmir, Turkey. He was applying for permanent residency there before his arrest and was imprisoned on October 2nd, uh, rather 7th, uh, 2016. Uh, The petition to free Pastor Andrew has more than 500,000 signatures from 202 nations and territories worldwide, including Turkey, advocating for his release, and we're asking that you would consider signing on to that as well. Uh, They'd like to have far more um, supporting that effort as well. Uh, His daughter has appeared before Congress. She appeared before the U.N. Human Rights Council in Geneva on behalf of her father to ask for intervention. But the Turkish president, Erdogan, has suggested a swap of Pastor Andrew in exchange for a a Turkish cleric currently residing in Pennsylvania. Um, Pastor Andrew was not charged until after being imprisoned for 17 months without any evidence and no access to his file. He's lost 50 pounds in prison. He is falsely charged with uh, membership in an armed terrorist organization and military political espionage uh, that he has not been involved in. And a large percentage of the 62-page indictment, which has now um, been made available, presented against him, is comprised of uh, rhetoric by unknown secret witnesses that he cannot confront. 
he was recently visited in prison by Senator Tom Tillis, and the prosecution is asking for 35 years in prison, which is at uh, 50 years old, amounts to a life sentence. Again, the uh, American Center for Law and Justice is working feverishly on Capitol Hill with the State Department and the White House on his behalf in Turkey and with the U.N., urging the U.N. Working Group on Arbitrary Detention to intervene in this case and to help bring him home to his family. Of course, your prayers are encouraged and welcomed, and we know that is the uh, the weapon that's uh, most successful, uh, most powerful in addressing these kinds of issues. So do keep that in mind, aclj.org. I want to thank Clark uh, Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.